Hi, friends, and welcome to another episode of the End of Sport podcast. My name is Nathan Coleman Lamb, and I'm here today with Derek Silva. Hey, Derek. Hey, Nathan. We have such a great episode for you yeah. today. Um, we are talking to a person who is honestly one of the most important athletes um, of our generation, even though you may not realize that. And that, that's part of the problem. A person who, despite the really incredible athletic attributes, and, and I got to say, I was, I was digging through my email. I was just looking up an email um, to, to connect with this person as part of the scheduling process. And, and I typed I typed in his name in my Gmail and I got I, an email popped up from 2014 from one of my close friends, uh, shout out to James Harlem. And the email said, it was titled Chris Borland and said he didn't get as many tackles today, only 13, but he also had two interceptions, two. Because we were playing fantasy football at the time, I'm ashamed to say. Um, those days are behind me. But in 2014, I was still uh, an avid fantasy sport player. Um, and he was remarking on how exceptional Chris Borland's performance was in his rookie season. And yet at the end of that season, Chris Borland retired from the NFL because of his concerns about head trauma and the general harm related to the sport. And we had the opportunity to sit down with Chris and dig into everything harmful about football culture um, and the health consequences of football, college football. Um, and he is just a remarkable individual, an incredible analyst of the game and of the culture of the game. And uh, it is our tremendous privilege to, to share this interview with you that we conducted with him. Enjoy. And as always, if you are enjoying the show, please like, share, subscribe. Please leave a review if you're enjoying the show on uh, Apple or whatever podcasting app that you use. Those reviews go a long way uh, to boost us in the algorithm and feed off or, or fend off, I should say, the, the trolls. So we appreciate that. So here's the episode. Chris Borland is a former linebacker with the NFL's San Francisco 49ers and former college All-American at the University of Wisconsin. In 2015, he retired from the NFL after only one season, citing health and safety concerns. Chris, it is an absolute pleasure to have you on The End of Sport. Thanks for coming on the show. Derek, Nathan, great to be with you. I'm a fan of your work and excited to talk today. Likewise, likewise. And and I think let's start with like the thing that we simply have to ask you about. Um, what made you decide in 2015, after a season which you received a vote for Defensive Rookie of the Year, which is a, a pretty in, intense honor, at the beginning of a seemingly incredibly promising career as a fully compensated football player, what caused you to retire? And how did you come to that decision? And how do you feel about it today? Um, you know, in simple terms, I just, I began looking into, uh, the ramifications of repetitive brain injury. Um, I played in college and, and my one season in the pros as the issue of CTE and other brain diseases, um, was gaining steam, uh, in the public consciousness. So, uh, I think I was willfully ignorant, ignorant of it in college, um, 
you know, even when you, you know, Junior Seau took his life and, um, you know, I would explain away some of the tragic stories I'd heard. Um, but as I set out on my NFL career, um, and I had lofty goals, I wanted to play for a decade plus, um, you know, I, I, the hall of fame was kind of my North star. Um, as I set out on my, on my NFL career, I, di- I just wanted a better understanding of the risks, um, you know, where, uh, you know, I would, you know, an actuary for me personally, as I, you know, began a career as a middle linebacker with a bad concussion history. Um, so it really started in training camp, my rookie season and, you know, sporadically reading more here and there. Um, and the further I got into it, um, the more I would read and, uh, kind of, uh, began to realize that there are so many names and so many players that weren't junior Seau or, or Mike Webster, um, who had a lot of difficulty later in life. Um, I didn't know that I would, it would certainly be one year really until I decided, uh, early in the off season. Um, but you know, when you read statistics, you know, like an NFL produced one that 28% of players will have cognitive, cognitive impairment in their life. That's pretty arresting. Um, and again, I was, uh, a middle linebacker whose MO was stop stuffing the run. Um, and I'd had a bad concussion history as early as eighth grade. Um, and then played through quite a bit going both ways in high school, um, and starting for four years at Wisconsin. Um, so I, I probably naively at 23, um, thought, you know, this is, it's better to get off that tr- the train than, than, um, you know, go down that path much, much longer in the NFL, um, because it would be harder to stop and start a new life. Um, so I, I quit after my first season, um, you know, and that uh, it was really thrust into a, a pretty, uh, a role as an advocate of sorts, or my decision was upheld as, um, uh, you know, a damning critique of football, which it is in ways, but, um, the short of it was that I, I, from everything I learned, it really forced me to be more honest with my own history. And it, you know, simply put, it was in the best decision, uh, in the best interest of, of, uh, for my personal health. Was it a, like, was it, was there a moment that you kind of had this decision, um, and you, you realized that, um, you, you just needed to retire or was it more of a culmination of, different forms of information and reflection on your own career? It was more of a culmination. Um, you know, since um, once when I was 13 and again, when I was 16 or 15, um, I had bad, you know, I was knocked unconscious for a minute and a half in eighth grade and then uh, had a similar injury in 10th grade. Those, I didn't have those type of moments uh, thereafter. Um, as I was looking into the research, it was more just um, coming to terms with the fact that my <laughs> just kind of the normal activities of playing middle linebacker, um, you know, there's 20 games in the NFL, um, just reconciling that um, all of those hits are unavoidable there. It's just part of the game. Mm-hmm. It's part of practice. Um, and so there wasn't one moment, there wasn't an epiphany. It just looking at the research and being honest about, you know, what I was doing, it just seemed like it would be unavoidable if I wanted to achieve my goals um, in the NFL. 
Nathan. Wow. Yeah. Uh, sorry, sorry, guys. I'm, just, I, I'm not used to muting myself. We don't usually record on Zoom, so I was muting myself and then I'm unmuting. Um, apologies for that. Um, okay. Three, two, one. Yeah. I mean, I, I really can't imagine what that feels like um, to, to be in that position and to make that kind of decision. Um, now, to kind of dig into this more, there's so many different ways we want to explore this. Um, and to, it's, such a, it's such an honor and a pleasure for me to have the opportunity to speak to someone like you who has really kind of lived through all of the kind of issues and challenges that are sort of central to how I understand sport. Um, and, I, and I really admire you for, for what you have done for yourself and, and the advocacy you've engaged in since your career was over. And actually you indicate, you shared with me um, a speech the former NFL player Pat Tume gave to the University of Iowa, the football team over 30 years ago. Um, as he pointed out to me, he was incidentally not invited back. Um, he said in that speech of the experience of working in professional football, quote, now for a guy to do this, to take that needle twice a week, to undergo this excruciating treatment over that per extended period of time, he's got to either possess or to develop a very peculiar relationship to his body. To fulfill the expectations of the ideal, to thus be elevated as a cultural role model, to be tough, by these standards, to be a pro, in other words, he's got to come to regard his body as something which is not truly part of himself. He's got to come to regard his body as a kind of object, as a piece of furniture. To do this, he's got to split his psyche, to fragment himself. He's got to dissociate in a serious way. To what extent do you relate to what he said? That is, did you experience that yourself, that dissociation? And if you did, what does that feel like? I 100% relate to what Pat wrote. I think every um, college and pro football player does. Um, the experience of it, it, there's kind of a paradox. You know, as a high-level athlete, you need to be very attuned to your body um, for the sake of performance. But in a sport as brutal as football, you need to be able to block out um, you know, whatever injury or ailment or, or pain you're in. Uh, I can remember my freshman year at Wisconsin. Um, you know, I grew up playing a lot of basketball. I love, I love to pick up basketball. And of course, during the season, you wouldn't play, but um, there were my peers in the dorms were going to play pick up basketball on like a Wednesday or Thursday in the middle of my, my first semester at Wisconsin, my freshman season. And I just thought like, even if I wasn't playing, I'm in too much pain to get out there and play pickup basketball. But in two days, I'm going to play you know, 75 plays in a football game on Saturday. And I, I was almost <clears throat> incredulous with myself. Of like, how am I even, how is that possible? I'm going to do it. But um, to me, when, as you were reading Pat's words, that, that memory sticks out in my mind. Um, and I think it's a common experience, even up to game day, there's guys that um, I have no idea how I'm going to get through the next three hours, but somehow you do. Um, the personal toll of that, uh, you know, paradox um, that Pat talked about um, can be can be heavy, but um, you know, practically speaking, it kind of playing through a lot of pain or injury um, just starts a cycle where it continues. Um, a lot of times players will need 
painkillers to mask their injury. And then of course, you likely further, further injure uh, whatever you were trying to, to play through, um, which then makes you more reliant upon, upon painkillers. So uh, it's the nature of the beast. And it, um, there's, I mean, it's, it's pretty rare to go through football and not fall into that cycle to some degree. Wow. Now, when you when you re- ultimately decided to retire, and and I I'm hearing a lot of what you're saying, and a lot of the reasons, the underlying reasons for why um, you had this sort of progression of thoughts, um, and and were receiving information about um, this game, and looking around and experiencing these things, and it would drive you um, to to no longer play a game that that I would admit, Chris, that you enjoyed playing, or or I, I would I would suspect, sorry, that you enjoyed playing, that you 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 there's still something about the game that you um you enjoy. And then you decided to retire. Can you share what kinds of reactions um that you got from other players when you made the ultimate decision to retire? It's it seems like there there's probably some interesting um reactions. And to what extent do you feel like most professional and college football players understand these risks that you're speaking to? Well, firstly, I mean, I loved playing football. And I think anybody that um, plays in college or the pros yeah. at least started out loving it. Um, in terms of the reaction to my decision, um, it's funny. Um, so f- there's really two reactions. There was, um, from within football and outside of football, um, you know, players and fans. Um, when you think about relatively very, very few people play football, period. I mean, I, um, you know, grossly speaking, half of our population doesn't play. It's largely boys and men that play. And then of that percentage, um, it's, it's smaller yet. Um, and I think 95 or 96% of the people that ever don pads and a helmet don't play beyond high school. Um, so practically no one experiences high level football, college or pro. Um, so the fan reaction um, was predictable. How could you turn down this amount of money? How could you stop playing? You know, I, I, I dreamed of playing in the NFL and you're giving it up. Uh, the reaction in, internally was different. Um, even if players disagreed with my decision, um, they understand, if only viscerally, the, the toll. Um, then when you dig into some of the research, um, it, it's undeniable. So, you know, I, there was a, a regular sentiment from players of, I, you know, I disagree, but I, I understand. Or even I would have made the same decision you did if I wasn't, you know, the meal ticket for my family and friends. Um, so it, it's complex, but I, I think it's easy to forget because football's our most popular sport in America, how few people actually experience it. Um, it's also a game that when it's over, it's over. Um, you don't see pick up padded football games in your local park. Yeah. Um, so, uh, a lot, a lot of, a lot of fans uh, are formulating opinions on the game from at best playing a few years of high school football, which is pretty radically different than college and pro. Could you expand a little bit on your relationship to fans during this period? It, it, we're, Nathan and I are both really interested in 
in fandom generally speaking and so, some of the the issues associated with fans and the dehumanizing aspects of of fandom so i'm i'm really curious to get your your insight on on how you were interacting or um how you experienced fans during this this uh, this really life-changing um time period yeah i um fans aren't a monolith i mean it's it's a mixed bag you, mm-hmm. you get um supportive and understanding and empathetic fans and then you get um jerks and i think one aspect that a few things that make it difficult to be a fan i I think you only really consume the game through uh you know how it's marketed to you um so there's a pretty wide gulf between um maybe what you think football is and what it actually is um and then secondly and i don't think this is is trivial um i think fantasy sports and gambling um and the you know you know in one generation gambling has gone from somewhat you know, CD or, or, um, you know, unspoken to now everybody, you know, DraftKings and all of these places. So I, I think, um, the second point fantasy and gambling have further, um, widened that gulf between player and fan and, and de- maybe dehumanized players. I, I know, um, I've had teammates who were on people's fantasy teams and, and they are, they're out with a concussion or a bad injury. And these people are on social media, um, you know, complaining to them that they should be in there because of their fantasy team, um, which is pretty ridiculous. And it's, um, you know, it's just uh, from that standpoint of a fan being that far removed, only getting the uh, your view of football from what how it's marketed and then, you know, having your own hard-earned money riding on what some stranger is going to do uh, on the field. Um, I, yeah, I think it does dehumanize players. There's so much amazing insight in what you're saying. Um, you know, one thing I wanted to underscore is your point, something that I, I think I maybe didn't even fully consider this idea that despite how beloved this sport is in the United States, clearly the most popular sport, um, most people don't actually play football. You're, you're right. Most people don't play football. And it's very hard as someone who doesn't play football, you know, to in a way relate to the experiences that you have as football players to really understand. And as you point out, if you then provide these other prisms like gambling and fantasy and so forth, and even the traditional kind of fan communities that form around sport, if you provide those sort of prisms for understanding this game that they don't have a firsthand relationship with, um, in a way, there's no wonder that there's a kind of distortion that happens, right? This way in which the athletes become, as you put it, dehumanized, they become so separated from the fans in terms of like the ability to have solidarity, to empathize, um, to understand what that experience is. So, yeah, I, I think, first of all, that, that, that's a great point. The other thing I wanted to say was you, you highlighted the fact that the decision to be able to continue playing or to choose to protect yourself and not play, that that situation for some can be um, constrained by the socioeconomic circumstances that a person finds themselves in. Would you agree? Because I mean, I think for Derek and I, this is certainly a a part of our analysis of the political economy of football. Would you agree that at the end of the day, one of the main pillars that continues to support football as a viable industry today, given the health and safety, the inherent occupational health and safety risks that go with it, 
is what we call the structural coercion of the fact that this is such a deeply unequal society economically and especially based on race, um, that we have so many people who will benefit materially, themselves and their families, from participation in football, from access to higher education, that football itself as an industry relies on that fundamental inequality in U.S. society. Would you agree with that based on your experience of people involved in football? Yes, and I think that's historically true. Um, And it's becoming increasingly true with um, the study of CTE and other other, uh, degenerative diseases of the brain. Um, If you have options, um, why would you subject yourself to that risk? Uh, And I think we're seeing it manifest in youth football there's leagues that tackle leagues that are closing down in lots of wealthier neighborhoods that you know even historically were football hotbeds outside of chicago and um outside of dallas but um you know the opposite is true for for people that maybe don't have as many options um you know i I don't think there's any i've got teammates from they grew up in pretty bleak situations and there's no pause because you know uh many of the men in their family or circle might not live long for other reasons um so it it is um i do think the industry is reliant upon a workforce that comes from a difficult background and from the perspective of, of my teammates that came from situations like that it is um you know, tragically in a way, but a simpler choice. This is my access to college. And this, you know, if things, if I can become good enough and make it through without catastrophic injury, um, the potential payoff of, of millions of dollars um, could tr- change the trajectory of your family's life forever. Um, so I, I yeah, I, I, um, I think, who participates just reinforces that thesis that um, yeah it's going to be it's going to be poor kids or kids without options um, more so than um, you know kids who came from families that had means. Now you're you're gesturing this um, you're gesturing to this quite a bit, but in the in the Netflix documentary Killer Inside, you said of your time at Wisconsin, it's big industry, and they're willing to put in basically kids or young men in situations that will compromise their long-term health just to beat Northwestern. Can you elaborate on where players fit in the business of college football and what this means for their long-term health and well-being? Yeah, I think um, it's another, it's another paradox with the way things are, are run because where players fit, I think obviously they're central or at the top. People, people mm-hmm. fill stadiums and turn on uh, their TVs to watch the players, um, not to watch administrators or, or coaches. Um, so in that sense, they're at the top. When it comes to protections or, or compensation, um, players are at the bottom. Um, how it manifests in, in you know, your experience as a player in big-time college football, um, you're really left without much choice. Um, you know, people that are critical of, of, you know, someone speaking out on, on how it's difficult or how players are exploited would say, well, just 
just don't do it if you don't, if that's the case. Um, you know, the alternative for many, many college athletes is bleak. So of course they continue to do it. Um, but it's, uh, I mean, I, you know, I, I'm at a loss for words because it's just so, so it's just exploitation. Mm -hmm. And, uh, there's so much money being made from people that don't get a dime, uh, that, you know, what more do you say? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and we've, we've certainly talked at length about that. So it's, it's, I think clear to all listeners that we couldn't agree with you more about that. Um, I actually want to dig deep now into something that you said. I want, I'm going to quote you at length in a moment um, because I, I'm not sure how, I don't think enough people are aware of the fact that you delivered an absolutely searing indictment of the state of concussion research in college sport in front of Congress in 2019, uh, which was reproduced in full by Deadspin. And we'll link that in the show notes. And, and I think it needs to be read in full because as I said, as I just said a moment ago, it has been criminally underreported and underdiscussed. So I want to start by quoting you at great length here, and then sort of we'll, we'll kind of we'll, we'll circle back and try to elaborate on some of this. What you said was, in 2014, the Department of Defense and NCAA collaborated to create what they call the Grand Alliance, a $30 million initiative to study concussion. Under the Grand Alliance, a program was launched dubbed the CARE Consortium. CARE is an acronym for Concussion Assessment, Research, and Education. In the words of the NCAA and Department of Defense, the CARE Consortium serves as the scientific and operational framework for the Concussion Research Initiative of the Grand Alliance. To date, $64 million has been poured into the CARE Consortium. There have been 40,000 athletes studied, and the NCAA and Department of Defense report to have captured 3,300 concussions. Due to disincentivization in reporting concussions that I understand well as a former Big Ten linebacker, I believe the figure of 3,300 concussions flawed to the point of being unusable. My intimate relationship with this research further bolsters my personal experience. The University of Wisconsin is a member institution in the CARE Consortium. I have played with many men that were participants in the study. I know that most of these men appear in the research as having never sustained a concussion. That is, they have never reported sustaining a concussion. In my experience in football, which is not unique to that of my friends and teammates, symptoms of concussion, whether it be dizziness, tinnitus, imbalance, or others, were weekly occurrences during the season. The NCAA and Department of Defense routinely failed to acknowledge when sharing care consortium data that an estimated one-eighth to one-twentieth of concussions is actually reported. A second glaring omission is that concussion is not believed by neuropathologists to be solely instrumental in brain diseases like chronic traumatic encephalopathy. Focusing only on concussion ignores the re repetitive subconcussive hits to the head that football players experience that are believed to contribute to neurodegeneration. While the CARE Consortium, the NCAA, and Department of Defense have done a good job studying reported concussions, the CARE Consortium has done a better job at distracting athletes and the public by excluding vital information and appropriate context, end quote. So here's what I want to ask, Chris. Um, and again, that is, that is really an incredible passage. And I, and I wanted to read it in full in part so that listeners would have the context that you provided, the exceptional context about the CARE Consortium and about concussion reporting. 
First, what impact do you think your comments had on Congress, the CARE Consortium, and the media and popular discourse around football, if any? And second, can you elaborate just a little bit on how the CARE Consortium collects data on traumatic brain injury and why the data they collect is insufficient in terms of accounting for the actual amount of harm caused in college football? Well, firstly, to the uh, question on what impact my words in front of Congress had none, uh, zero. Um, <laughs> that that hearing was about industry's influence uh, of science, and so it wasn't focused chiefly on on football or brain injury. There were um, <clears throat> the former head of OSHA, uh, David Michaels, was there. Um, uh, an advocate for uh, opioid addiction was there, and there was a couple other folks. So um, part of the reason that it had zero impact is uh, the, the Republicans in the committee uh, refused to have it be an official hearing. Um, they, uh, so it wasn't, uh, they just, you know, everyone flew out and prepared remarks and we sat down and then Willie Gomert comes and, and says, uh, we're not going to hear this because it, um, it isn't under the purview of whatever committee we were speaking in front of. Um, so the panelists, um, simply read their, their message and just for posterity, um, but it wasn't a hearing, so no impact, um, which was, uh, discouraging, um, but on, on par, uh, in, in terms of how the care consortium collects data, you know, I, I don't know the inner workings of all the ways in which they, they capture data. My, my point in that, um, in my remarks was I do know intimately that, you know, guys that I played with and myself who experienced those symptoms and, and a few guys on, on the team were in that in their data set um, as a zero, were regularly experiencing symptoms of concussion. Um, so if you just extrapolate that, um, you know, we weren't uniquely physical in, at Wisconsin. Um, every every college football player will likely have a similar experience. So, you know, that's why I think that figure um, shouldn't be presented as as a data point representative of the experience of playing football. Um, and I do think to take some you know heat off of my critique, um, it it simply is a challenging uh, thing to do as a researcher. Um, with the context being, you know, every reason in the world for a college football player not to report a concussion. Um, you know, literally millions of dollars may be at stake for this individual. So, and let alone love for the game, wanting to play, being wrapped up in the, um, you know, in your college obsession with, uh, with football and winning in the program. Um, there's every reason in the world not to report. And so I do empathize with researchers of, you know, how do you uh, fight against that to capture the reality? And I, and I think most, many researchers, um, you know, want to get it right. Um, it, they may not have the personal understanding of that context. I, I think statistically few played football, um, you know, certainly not at high levels, um, if ever. Um, and so I, I don't want to, you know, lambast folks that are, you know, trying to understand the issue. Uh, I will say I, I think um, those challenges are well understood to the people funding the research too. 
Um, so you can you understand um, if we put money into this, we'll as the NCAA or NFL or Department of Defense, um, we get the PR benefit of appearing to, to care deeply about health issues. But the brain is so complex, and there's so many variables um, that you're really you're really buying yourself time. Um, it's it's Pandora's box of issues. When whenever you look into you know why someone might be experiencing you know cognitive deficits or emotional disturbances, and um, I, I think I said to you last we spoke that um, the genuine scientific rigor that researchers engaging in this issue have doubles as a very convenient form of obfuscation for the industry that benefits um, from brain damage, basically, from repetitive contact. Um, so I, I, to go back um, and tie it together with, with Pat's piece um, that he addressed um, University of Iowa, um, it's a dynamic. It's a, it's a constellation of issues that put everybody in the situation in a bind. The poor player that's playing through injury is in a bind because he's not compensated or insured beyond a certain amount of years in college because he wants to get to that payoff. The athletic trainer and the researchers are in a bind because, um, you know, it isn't so damning as to not to do, not to do it, but there's certainly an issue and there's pressure everywhere. Coaches too. So um, I just want to pace back being over, you know, I want to be generous to the folks that are involved because it's easy when you're, um, you know, criticizing a system uh, for people to get caught up in it. But I think in many ways, you know, researchers, coaches, athletic trainers, tutors are all kind of victims of this, um, you know, college sports being an unjust system. And, and what you're, what you're saying here actually raises another set of questions that we are really interested in um, both Nathan and myself, which, which are around the ethics of this research in the first place. We know that IRBs at university sign off on all research about concussions, uh, all research to be done. But a huge part of university-sanctioned research is the question of consent. I'd argue, beside liability mitigation, it's the central question of IRBs. Do you feel like college football players at schools like Wisconsin um, and, and others uh, are in a position to provide full and enthusiastic consent for their participation in these studies, both in terms of the actual information that they're um, provided with, and also in terms of the, I, I think the more interesting question, the structural coercive dimensions of the equation. I, I am, I'm with you, like in the, in trying to not levy the critique at individual researchers, but the more structural conditions, for instance, um, potential loss of opportunities if they do not consent um, to participate or any issues that may um, it may stem from participation in these studies on their playing career or on their playing time. That's just one example I can think of. But do you think consent is even possible in this context? Um, and I'll start with the second question of, of coercion, and it's maybe a funny and or sad example. Um, when the Grand Alliance was recruiting uh, players at Wisconsin to participate in the study, I believe you got ten dollars uh, once or twice or maybe three times, and ten dollars means a Chipotle burrito when you're, you know, a sophomore in college who needs to keep weight on. Um, so when you don't have any 
money and uh, you're going to get three free burritos for just doing a 20 minute assessment uh, three times. Like that's how pitiful the, the or how, um, it, how pitiful the coercion can be. Um, and in terms of your first question about consent, I, I think, um, you know, le legally, uh, you know, these are adults. Um, there's no reason why you can't uh, inform yourself uh, and consent. But practically, I think it's, um, you know, ridiculous to expect an 18 year old to understand all the implications of, uh, of what's going on. Um, you know, people that in terms of the industry, uh, but specifically the research, because there's researchers who've been at it for decades who don't fully understand the implications. Um, uh, so I, I, yeah, I, I, I think the industry has, you know, covered their tail. Um, and it's, I think legally up to snuff, um, but practically speaking, I don't, I don't think it's a, it's a form of consent in the, in the way that you phrased it. Um, fully understanding, um, engaging in it eagerly. I, no, I don't think that that was the case with at least this specific study at, that Wisconsin was a part of. Yeah, because I mean, our experience in, and Derek and I have been conducting a lot of interviews for um, the book we're working on. Our experience has been in talking to a lot of these athletes that um, you're signing a lot of papers <laughs> when you're a college athlete. Um, there's a lot of things that you're legally required to consent to. Um, and there's a pretty clear incentive, which is that you want to play college football. That's, that's why you're there. And in order to play college football, all those papers need to get signed. Um, so it just, it strikes me after, you know, hearing this from a number of different people that, um, even if you were to argue that there's nothing profoundly insidious about it, i.e. like, like deliberate misinformation, right. Or <laughs> some kind of trickery at the end of the day, you got a stack of papers in front of you and that stack of papers is the barrier between you and your goal. Like, is there any universe in which anyone is not signing that stack of papers? It's a Hobson's choice. You, you, um, you really, your alternative is not being there or is not signing and, and, and leaving uh, the program. Um, I think one of the, you know, to try to frame it constructively, I think one thing that maybe I'm naive, but I, this could improve the situation is to have some sort of third party present, some representation, something. Um, in my experience, and I think this is pervasive, um, you know, you sign those stack of documents you know, just prior to the season starting. And then when you reconvene uh, in January for, um, you know, winter workouts in the following year, um, the manner in which it's presented, I mean, there's a, there's a team meeting and you, you know, everyone from the coach to administration, to compliance, to medical staff is present. And you just kind of go through, you know, a stack of papers and, and, and sign everything. And, I don't know of one instance where a player refused to sign. I don't know of one instance where a player said, let me uh, sleep on it or let me um, you know, share this with an attorney. Uh, it, it's presented as just a, a nuisance that should be taken care of quickly so we can get to like watching film or get to practice. Um, so I think there's a better way for it to be done. Um, at the end of the day, though, the system is such that I'm sure if you turn those papers over to your to an attorney, um, you know, you're still in that same Hobson's choice of, well, 
I have to do this uh, if I want to play. But, um, you know, at least that would be a, a, a buffer or, or a second pair of eyes on the way that it's done. And at the very least, um, you know, create a little pause for 18 and 19 year old kids to like get to see what they're signing and the implications and, and um, just to put it in their awareness. Um, I think a lot of college athletes, um, it's only upon reflection that they realize how, how messed up some of these coercive practices were. Yeah. I, look, to just to put even fi- a fine point on what you've just been saying, Chris, like, again, because they and I are doing this work right now, it's like front of mind. Um, a part of the process of getting consent for IRB is to tell the people that you're asking for consent from, for participation in your study, there will be no negative ramifications to you. If you choose not to participate in this study, the university won't hold it against you. The researchers won't hold it against you. No one involved will hold it against you. And that is diametrically opposed to the reality for the college athlete who is being given this consent form, mostly by a team official, right? Who does hold power over the player, who will ultimately, I mean, maybe again, legal. I think you're right, Chris, like legally, the ducks are all lined up in a row. Like at the end of the day, probably you don't well, want a lawsuit over this. I'm sure. I'm sure that they've, you know, they've got many lawyers in house and compliance people that have made sure of that. Exactly. Exactly. But I mean, ethically speaking, and with the spirit of what IRB is supposed to accomplish, right? Like, you can't actually get the kind of consent universities are supposed to be getting for research studies that they're supporting in the context where coercion is just the name of the game. Um, so you know, it's. I think that that's something that concussion researchers like you have, you are such a generous um, person, but I mean, I'm, this is my words, not yours, but I mean, I think this is something that concussion researchers should be grappling with more. How are you complicit in a system like this? How are you allowing these kind of coercive conditions to inform your research? Because the very fact that it's taking place in this environment, um, that raises to me fundamental questions about what you're doing. Um, so I'm, I'm not going to put that back on you. That's that's me speaking, not you. But I mean, I just, I, I basically can't get over this. Whenever I start thinking about it, I just get, I get worked up about it. There are a lot no, of should, other, yeah, no. go, go please ahead. No, go, go ahead, Chris, go ahead. No, I, I was just, uh, I didn't have a point. You can continue. Okay. Um, there are a lot of current events issues now in the world of college sports that I would love to kind of just sort of run by you. And one of them is the fact, I think probably around the time that we're going to release this interview, um, the NCAA is meeting for its, constitu- for its annual convention. But at this convention, one of the things they're going to be doing is approving their new constitution, which has been floated in draft form. Um, there's been a lot of feedback on it. Like it's already been going through many stages of the process. This would essentially be it's not technically a rubber stamp, but like this is sort of like the final stage. So, I mean, we all know how it's going to play out. I think I don't, I don't expect any surprises. Um, but one of the things about it um, that is especially galling for those of us who are concerned about the exploitation in college sport is the fact that the NCAA decided to use the word student athlete 44 times in this new constitution, despite the demand of the NLRB's general counsel to stop using the term because it chills organizing and activism. The NCAA claimed that they used the term in the constitution, again, a term that has historically been used for legal purposes to evade workers' compensation claims and generally promote the principle of amateurism, AKA wage theft. They claimed they used the term in the constitution at the insistence of athletes themselves, including the three on the committee 
that drafted the Constitution. Now, for a Guardian story we ran recently, we talked to over a dozen athletes who did push back against the idea um, that most college athletes favor the use of the term. Uh, and they give us a lot of reasons for that. Part of it being that many athletes aren't necessarily that well-informed about the history of the term, and it's kind of instrumental value in devaluing their own labor. Um, they, they referenced the fact, which I thought was a really compelling argument, that um, because of this tremendous, strenuous demands of being a college athlete and having to genuinely um, balance the full-time workload of being a campus athletic worker with being an actual student, genuinely, that they felt sort of pride in the identity of doing those two things. So the term student athlete felt right, right? Because it was a term that seems to signify on the surface quite clearly that identity. And also they spoke to the fact that like, at the end of the day, you're just marinating in this term all the time. Like the, if, the, if the NCAA used it 44 times in its constitution, they use it 44,000 times like every day in the life of a so-called student athlete. And to the extent that it becomes very difficult not to be interpolated into that term. I'm curious where you stand on this. Do you think athletes want to be called student athletes? Should they want to be called student athletes? What do you make of the term? Uh, there's a lot there. And I would take a step back. And before asking, first of all, I doubt that there were uh, student athletes lobbying the NCAA to please use that term. And if there, <laughs> if there were, I would ask those college athletes um, about the history of the term. I, I think um, it has become so pervasive and it is a source of pride for you know people that are juggling a full-time professional athletic career with being a full-time student. Um, I doubt, you know, can't put a percentage on it. Uh, I know personally in discussing this with teammates and a few active players um, that I've encountered very few that know the genesis of the term. So, um, you know, the head of the NCAA for 30 years, Walter Byers, wrote one book in his life, and it was called Unsportsmanlike Conduct, Conduct Exploiting the College Athlete. In it, he describes how they concocted this term to deny uh, a, co a college football player in Colorado who died from injuries incurred on the field to deny him and his family from workers' compensation. Um, so they needed something intentionally vague. You know, why was this player on the field? Well, well, he's an athlete, but why does he not get access to workers' compensation? Well, he's a student first. And it was that circular logic that protected them from paying this this man's family um, in workers' compensation, I, I would suspect practically zero um, college athletes today know that history. And the term is so pervasive. I mean, you see it, athletes wear it with pride in their bio on their social media. Um, you hear it now younger and younger. Um, you know, we were, we were called student athletes in high school. Um, and I see that more today with kind of the professionalization of youth sports. Um, I, I basically think it's a dirty term. Um, you know, the history of it, the way it's been employed, um, you know, my opinion of it isn't solely mine. I and mean, it was the architect of it. Walter Byers came to see it as a, um, you know, a means to, by which to exploit young people. Um, so, you know, that's the NCAA is going to use it. Um, maybe those athletes, did say, please use it. Um, I'd be curious to peel a layer back and ask them if they knew the, the history of the term. Um, 
it could be a similar situation in the NCAA drafting their new constitution uh, as to researchers looking into concussion. If you strip the context and history and um, you only, only operate on the surface level, maybe maybe the athletes did say, because they're proud of all the work they do, you know, we like being called student athletes. Um, I hope, <laughs> I hope they, uh, I hope they don't know the history. I mean, if they knew it and were accepting it, that's like a some strange form of, of self hatred in a way. But um, yeah, I'm not, I'm not surprised, and um, that's all I've got on that. Now, as we as we mentioned, as Nathan mentioned in, in the previous question, uh, and we've discussed this at length on this show, um, including with an interview um, with the general counsel herself, Jennifer Abruzzo of the National Labor Relations Board has argued that college athletes are employees and should be afforded the bargaining and organizing rights that come along with that status for everyone else um, in the United States. You were in the Big Ten when Kane Coulter organized at North at Northwestern. I'm curious, and we're curious, um, what you made of the union drive back then, and where you stand today on the question of whether um, college athletes, especially football and basketball players, should unionize. Um, our senior Kane and I are the same uh, class, and we're friends today, and, and we're just you know uh, opponents through college, but. Um, you know, I remember when he, uh, set about with that effort, his senior, our senior year, um, I don't remember getting many questions on it, but one of my regrets was not publicly supporting him more. Um, I was all for it. Everything he, uh, you know, much of what he, uh, lobbied for is beginning to, is beginning to happen slowly and in small ways. but I think he was exactly in the right. I think he's, um, you know, college athletics, Kurt Flood. Um, you know, there, there are people before Kane that did similar things, but, um, yeah, I, I'm in full support. Um, you know, I don't know all the details or, or what it would look like or the ways in which the unintended consequences of a unionization effort would have on, you know, other, you know, non-revenue sports and everything. We could talk about that, but I, I think, um, it's beside the point. I, I, I think you do what's right and just, and then figure things out. And there's all these arguments from uh, the industry folks and NCAA and athletic departments and conferences of you know, how disruptive or you know problematic such an effort would be. But um, without it, um, players are coerced and they are signing stacks of documents and they are playing through injuries or being denied surgeries. Um, or having their scholarship threatened. Um, so there, I, I think um, I would agree with, with Jennifer. I, I, I'm certainly not <laughs> at her level of, of uh, being lead counsel for the NRLB, but yeah, athletes are, are employees, absolutely. Um, there's no reason, you know, there's no logical reason that um, athletes shouldn't be considered employees. Um, you know, I think it looks different at public and private institutions, but again, that's getting into the weeds. I, I think um, players do need um, you know, some form of formal organizing. It's difficult because it's a young and transient population uh, who's to a certain degree brainwashed on, on how good they've got it. And, and um, But yeah, I, I'm in support. 
Yeah, no, that's really well put. I think that that's, that's frankly like exactly the attitude that we have as well, which is that like there are a lot of weeds, like with anything, um, but you don't start there. I mean, I think we think it's actually a very disingenuous tactic and like an, a union busting tactic to start with the complications as if it's not possible to do something that is like a basic right, a basic good, um, which is that like the people who are generating all this revenue need to get the revenue that they're literally sacrificing themselves to produce. And if you built an entire system based on exploitation, uh, and by the way, US history has a lot to say about that. If you build an entire system based on a profound form of coercive exploitation, like, well, you got to build a new system. (laughs) You you can't, you can't preserve the system just because it's working for you now. Uh, Yes. Yeah. And it it would, it, it would be more feasible if, you know, and discussing people that want to talk about all the potential pitfalls of the organization or unionizing, um, be a heck of a lot easier if you stopped working directly against it. Lobbying Congress, uh, athletic directors having a super PAC that wants to reinforce the way things are done. Um, so it's it's funny when I hear you know athletic directors or administrators or or coaches or you know media mouthpieces say um, it won't work for this you know reasons X Y and Z. Well. You're hard at the industry's hard at work undermining uh, X, Y, and Z. So, um, yeah, it's just uh, you know when a lot of money is being made, people don't want to disrupt their their golden goose. Exactly. A perfect example of that is like Kirk Herbstreit this week. I was shocked. First of all, actually, this is a, frankly, I wasn't even planning to go down this road, but there was. A, so let me give up even more context. Um, Kirk Herbstreit had made some comments, I think on the day of the Rose Bowl, about the fact that players today are don't love the game and like sort of indica- indicating their sort of sense of entitlement and so forth. And then later in the day, uh, Marcus Williamson, uh, an Ohio State defensive back who I believe just basically ended his career uh, very, very shortly before, and he didn't participate in the game, even though he had been on that team. Um, he produced one of the most powerful sort of threads on Twitter. But like what I really mean is like, instances of athlete testimony about the exploitative conditions of college sport, really gesturing to a whole range of um, what is problematic about it, um, including the uh, uh, really disgusting use of an image of Trayvon Martin at a Ohio State team meeting to show why players shouldn't wear hoodies. Um, you know, and it, it caused a firestorm in college football, including a tremendous amount of backlash against Williamson from fans, um, from media members, and so forth. Um, so one thing is actually, I'm, I'm kind of curious what you think, what you kind of make of that moment in general, because I think that that moment may have a kind of profound impact on the discursive landscape. And one reason I know that is because just about five or six days later, Kirk Herbstreit, I was shocked to see this, came out and said that basically unionization is almost an inevitable path forward now in the context of college football. But yet, I want to add, in the same breath, said, of course, you know that all the athletes are going to lose all the perks that they currently have if they go down the union. So basically, they're making a really bad choice by pushing for unionization. But yeah, it looks like that's what's going to happen now. You know, it's going to ruin college football, yes, but like, looks like that's the future. Um, I don't know. What, any thoughts on this whole sort of situation? Uh, I, yeah, I kind of, <laughs> I saw it in the periphery. I didn't really follow any of it closely. Um, the, the most foolish oversight in Herbie's comments were um, about athletes not loving football. The players sitting out bowl games 
are doing so to train, prepare, and play more football. Um, so it's a matter of uh, the conditions they're laboring under, not the game. I mean, these are sitting out to become NFL players. Like, clearly, they love football. So I think that was a um, just a foolish thing to say. And um, you know, I just I just finished reading uh, David Marinus's book when Pride Still Mattered about uh, Vince Lombardi. Um, for, for a project I'm doing. And um, I think forever there's been one, I think football more than any other sport is very paternalistic. Um, so, you know, coaches and, you know, even media, media personalities um, have this ideal of football that is far more myth than reality, particularly college football um, that, you know, these are, you know, look call players, kids and uh, you know, so that you can almost like tap on the head and say, we know what's best for you, son, um, while raking in millions themselves. Um, a good example is with Northwestern. I, I, I think when Kane was organizing, um, Pat's fit, Pat Fitzgerald had, you know, meetings to inform the team on what it might look like to unionize. And uh, I mean, that's what Amazon did in Alabama when they're uh, employed. It was union busting. It wasn't an informative meeting. I do think in Fitzgerald's, like when you're so immersed in that bubble, um, you know, he probably wants the best for the players, but it's uh, from his perspective. Um, but it is paternalism and it is condescending and it is not, you know, failing to respect really what these athletes are producing. Um, so, yeah, and as far as the, the, fan reaction to the comments of the Ohio state player. Um, part of it is they don't know better. I mean, few have probably played, but um, putting a crack in that, in that, in the mystique of, you know, old alma mater going out there and, and it's, you know, what your family loves and fond memories and tailgating. Um, it's destabilizing for, for fans to hear what it's really like. And I think, part of the vitriol that players who speak out face is you're disrupting um, something that the average person does for fun. And they don't want to think about, um, you know, how the sausage gets made. Um, so you see it again and again, I, with, you know, Kane got a lot of lashback. I'm sure this, this kid, this guy did too. Um, you know, I, I experienced some of that and people just don't want to know. So um, you got to be careful what you say when people don't care anyway. Yeah, I mean, we have we have this uh, sociological concept. Sorry to make it all sociological on on us, but we have this sociological concept called imagined communities that Nathan has written about. But these imagined communities are formed um, some through the nation. The nation is this like imagined community. Oh, I'm American or Canadian or whatever. It, it's kind of constructed by all of us at any given time. Uh, and I think fandom, I, I think what you're articulating here is that um, fandom creates these imagined communities that connect us to something that's both real and not real at the same time. But actually, when that is attacked or when that is like challenged, it causes us some of that um, real tension, like visceral, visceral tension. And I think there's something to that. Uh, absolutely. And it's it, it. But this is where I think it it gets kind of back to what Pat was saying at, at Iowa in his Iowa speech, um, when it comes from within, 
when someone who has experienced what you claim to love tells you, well, it's not actually quite that. Um, it isn't just, you know, another, a fan from another team disparaging your team, or this is like someone coming and confronting you with reality and, mm -hmm. and that is, that knows it better than you ever could. And you reject it. Um, I love that notion of imagined communities. I, I, um, you see it a lot with fans when they say we or our, exactly. when they're talking about, <laughs> yeah. you know, we used to, uh, you know, what position do you play? <laughs> <laughs> I, I can, it's got to be the most gully in football when the toll is so great. Like yeah. it's one thing when you see it in basketball or baseball and it's like, we get it. It's ridiculous, but it's like, you're not, you're literally like drinking a beer, relaxing in a seat while my body is being bludgeoned repeatedly. How are we, we <laughs> in this situation? Exactly. Yeah. Um, but okay. Just a couple other things here. Um, Cause I actually want to come back around to the sausage making actually, when it comes to like what's going on, especially in institutions of higher education, I think that we have some, um, some really interesting things to meditate on there about the educational piece and the sort of question about academic freedom. But before, before I get to that, I also want to say, going back to Herbie's comments, you beautifully laid out why it's completely unreasonable and unfair to say, to make any kind of claim about the love for the game that these athletes have. I, I think you're right. But in addition to that, why do players have to love the game? You know, for me, if it's work, if we accept the premise that this is a form of employment, like we don't all have to love the work we do. We work for a lot of different reasons. And one of those reasons, as you've pointed out earlier in our conversation, is like the material improvement for ourselves and our families, right? Like the, the access to education, the access to the money we need to live in this world and the capitalist society. Like we work for a lot of reasons. That doesn't diminish the quality of our work. It doesn't somehow compromise us ethically. But to me, there's a way in which like, in the context of sport, especially because there's such resistance for, I think exactly the reasons we've been laying out these kind of imaginative constructs people have about it being something other than just a, a kind of a brute commodity, right? Just, um, but it's it's this site of meaning in a much more profound way, and because we build it up as that, that's where there's this need for it to be loved, to, to treat it as something um, more than work, other than work, uh, and so it's like you know when, when he makes that comment about. Um, do players love the game? There's a moral judgment there. Like there are worse, they're worse people precisely because they don't love this thing that they should love. Well said. And I, um, you know, in bridging the gulf between fan perspective and reality of players, I would say mo a lot of guys in the NFL and a lot of guys in college um, have lost their love for the game. Um, I said earlier in the interview, I think everybody, you know, all athletes at least start playing in part because they love aspects or love the entirety of playing. I certainly did. Um, but as you navigate the industry, it is your, it just becomes your job. Um, and there's still, you know, it varies by player and, um, but just being real, I mean, who loves you know, not being able to get out of bed on, on a Sunday or Monday or, um, you know, being in, in constant pain or there's aspects of it that of course, you know, even if you love it in its entirety, um, that aren't romantic. Um, the notion of, of, uh, you know, every player on the field it, it just loves to play ball is unrealistic. There, it is a moral judgment. Um, you know, and I, 
I think that that's, I, I think it's unlikely that fans um, would accept the fact that a lot of player, players don't love playing. Um, it's it, it's a it's a big ask to someone who hasn't done it, particularly if you've done a little, played played a little bit of high school football, um, to reconcile with that. Like you love watching, and you love the scene, you love the tailgate or the you know your, your watch party for a game, um, but it, it's just it's a different world than you're you know playing with your buddies in high school. Um, it's a job, and uh, that really. <laughs> dispels a lot of the myths that these entire industries are built around and you know herbie's made I don't, I don't know how many millions of dollars you know talking about amateur athletes for decades um you know it's a it's a company line basically and it is a moral judgment that i think they've lost their love for the game that's uh that's a little embarrassing yeah, I think I think that you've articulated this quite well. The, the I think the reason why people like Herb Street and the sports media industrial complex in general and the NCAA and institutions and coaches preach about love of the game is because that's the very foundation of amateur sport. If you take that away, it, there's amateur it doesn't exist. It, it, it it's it's a figment. Right, why would it, you do it? Yeah, <laughs> exactly. it, it makes literally no sense. So that's why even while we're seeing so many attacks from the outside, you can say nil is like an attack or name image likeness is, is something. Unionization is an attack. You've got critical people, you know, critiquing the system. You've got former players critiquing the system. So there's there's cracks and these people just constantly go back. The people with vested interest in upholding this constantly go back to this love idea and i think that's what herb street that's the damage of what he was actually talking about well it's um it's a way to scapegoat a player that is critical too um if um love the notion that they don't love the game and also a notion that maybe uh he's just not tough yeah um that's that's another one so you can dismiss legitimate critiques with like you know, just criticizing. I think Marcus Williamson was the player's name. Yeah. Like, oh, he just, you know, he was upset about playing time. wasn't tough enough. Didn't, you know, it wasn't. And uh, I don't know. I feel like that's shirking the um, heart of the issue. It's it's conflating or distracting. It's not actually engaging honestly with what Marcus was saying or what Kane said. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Well, okay. Let's 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 pick up on that because I said we talked about the, the sort of how the sausage is made, and now you brought up this toughness piece, which I think also connects to um, aggression as an idea. And this is something we 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 briefly briefly talked about on Twitter a while back because there was like a, a kind of moment. I think it was UMass's football team. There was they 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 tweeted out. Um, an image of their locker room about how much they loved aggression, something something about loving aggression, how like you aggression is how you solve all your problems or something like that. Um, so I know that you share some of our concerns about the uneasy relationship between football and higher education, the ways in which the two might be understood in a certain sense as almost irreconcilable, given the very fact that the things required to excel at football, and that's where this aggression, physical punishment of the felt and other, and all of that, and the time it takes, um, are in many ways contradictory to the requirements of higher education. 
I mean, there, there are a lot of ways to approach this. So I'm not trying to foreclose this answer, but I mean, one question I have is, do you even think that there is a place for football in higher education? Not because there's some kind of problem. And I think we want to be really clear about this. It's not that there isn't a place for athletics in higher education, that somehow like the body and mind need to be separated, that, you know, universities are too good for sport. And that's somehow creating like this, like too proletarian environment. Those are bullshit arguments. That's, that's not the kind of thing. We're not here to disparage sport as a thing to do. Um, this is really about football, right? Coming back to it, this is really about football and the very concrete demands most of us don't understand, as we've, we've talked about earlier, that football makes of the individual who's involved. Is it possible to be the kind of elite football player you have to be to literally survive in the context of college football, given how high the level is, right? And the, and the, the punishing demands of the sport as a consequence, and then to do the things you need to do to survive in higher education. Is there, is there, what's the question? Ha, well, the question is, is, it, is it possible? Is it possible to reconcile those things? You know, is there a place for football in higher education? Is there a way to make this work or like not? <laughs> yeah, I, I um, there's just so much there. And, um, you know, there probably are folks that want to ban football. Um, I wouldn't, I wouldn't go that far. I think, um, you know, such a violent sport that's bad for your brain and an environment where you're supposed to be cultivating your mind is a stark inconsistency. Um, so I, I think you could get to a point where it would make sense. I think as it's done now, um, it's unjust and should be untenable. But um, if we were just consistent and transparent and players were compensated and insured and made aware of the risks from an independent third party, however that's could be done. Um, you know, it would be imperfect, but I think reasonable to have a form of football associated with, with universities. Um, it's even broader than that. I, I think when you look at player health um, and even the mentality it requires to excel at football and whether that's a healthy thing to have in life, um, it starts younger. Um, it, it's tied to education through, you know, junior high and high school. Um, so I, I, as it exists today in, in the college athletics world, I think it, it's a kind of a glaring hypocrisy that, um, you know, football is associated with, with, um, higher learning and, and students are put in situations that, um, long-term can be damaging, but in, in acutely, um, it kind of makes a mockery of, of both the fact that you are a pro athlete in college and you, um, oftentimes your role as a student is, is, um, watered down at the best. So, um, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm just conflicted. I'm torn. This is a, this is a, a discussion, an argument that's been going on since football's inception uh, in various forms. And I just want to be careful not to paint with broad strokes because um, I, this came up in, in the Lombardi book uh, a number of times. Um, kind of the contradictions inherent to the who participates in football. And, you know, oftentimes you know, historically into today, it's used as a, a tool to rehabilitate young delinquent boys. Um, and I think there is some good in that. And I think um, some kids need 
more than uh, you know baseball or or tennis or playing an instrument. And I was one of those kids. I needed something more intense. And football was that for me. And I think um, did reform kind of a like a smart ass young Chris. Um, the flips the contradiction is, is that, uh, and I've seen this a million times. Um, rather than reform, it, it reinforces um, the type of behavior that you wouldn't want to see. And, you know, the solve your problems with aggression sign that is up in uh, UMass's team meeting room. It comes from their coach who was at, who's the defensive coordinator at Michigan, had the same thing up in their defensive meeting room when I visited in 2017 to teach the team mindfulness of all, of all things. So <laughs> <laughs> I didn't, uh, I didn't know it was up and I saw it. And as I was leaving and I, well, you know, why did I, you know, could, could have scrapped the whole presentation I just did, but um, you know, I, I'm rambling. I'm not sure I answered your mm-hmm. question, but um, that's kind of where I've, where I've come to with these issues and um, is just trying to, wrap my head around the contradictions and there's not, I don't think there's like a clear line um, to exactly how things should look. I do know that things need to change in college football so we can get closer to something that um, is aligned with what universities are supposed to stand for because um, an industry built on the backs of largely poor black kids uh, is kind of a, a, what it, uh, you know, Taylor Branch called it the shame uh, of college athletics. And mm-hmm. it's, um, yeah, there's it, only so much you can ignore. Um, and I, I, I just, you know, I can't ignore the, the realities of it anymore. And hopefully people in positions of leadership are, are feeling that. I know they've, you know, in knowing some athletic directors and administrators that um, they've been somewhat responsive to, to athletes pressure. And I think young people are better understanding their power. Um, so yeah, <laughs> probably not an, a satisfying answer. I, I don't have it resolved in my own mind. So to, to be quite frank, I don't think any of us have it fully resolved. And, and I think that you've articulated the problems um, in college football incredibly well. Um, and I don't think there's a, a better close for this episode that we that we possibly um, could have. So, Chris, we're very grateful for your time. We know you have a life, and we're very appreciative of uh, over an hour of chatting with you today. Thank you so much for coming on the End of Sport. Of course, thank you, Derek, and, and thank you, Nathan. It's great talking with you guys.